Years ago, I had the opportunity to go skiing for the first time with my father-in-law. And, uh, you know, looking at him, sizing him up, I wouldn't have guessed that he was going to carve quite as hard as he did. But the truth is, my, my father-in-law has been skiing with regularity for about four decades, maybe five. A lot of years spent on the slopes, a lot of muscle memory, and as a result, when I first saw him in his bright red onesie coming down the mountain, I was a little bit, uh, a little bit intimidated because he is in his element. The muscle memory and the quickness and the speed with which he carves down a mountain is rather impressive. And there's, there's something about that, right? Repeated action done time and time again begins to create a freedom, a, a mastery, an experience that is, that is invigorating. That where there is habit and hard work and muscle memory, all of a sudden we can do things that previously we were unable to do. And this week as we continue on a journey with the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see a, another picture of the community. And what we're going to see is the community engaged in worship. And I think as we pay attention to this rather poignant moment for the people of God as they gather in worship, we will see some of the rhythms or the habits of worship that have undergirded the worshiping community from the time the Israelites were in exile all the way through to our present day Christian worship gathering that we will see some crucial marks of the worshiping community that, that are intended to be habit. They're intended to be creating in us muscle memory that allows us to, with the presence and the power of God, navigate deftly through life with God's presence and help. You see, we're in this journey paying attention to Nehemiah, this great leader who has come and called a people together. And we've, we've looked at the heart of the leader and now we're looking at the soul of the community. And last week we said, what is the nature of a transformative community? And one of the marks of a transformative community is that they are worshipers. And it's as if we're taking last week and then we're zooming in on that second point from last week and saying, okay, well now what is a worshiping community? Because in Nehemiah 7, we saw him naming the people and counting those that were going to help lead worship for the people. And in Nehemiah 8, we now see those very people stepping up and leading them in worship. So we're going to go from looking at the, the marks of a transformative community last week in Nehemiah 7 to now looking at the marks of a worshiping community in Nehemiah chapter 8. And as we do we will be called into those same rhythms together, that we might create the same muscle memory, that we might be a people that navigate with God the beauties and the challenges of this world. So with that being said, I'm going to invite you to lean in with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to study together verses 1 through 12. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 8, and I would invite you to follow along with me. If you've got a Bible, please grab it and open it. We'll also have it on the screen for you if you want to follow along there. And just before I read, permit me to remind you of what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. Says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We'd be really wise to, with attentive ears and reverent hearts, pay attention to God's word today. 
Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he, this is Ezra, read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Uriah, Hilkiah and Maseah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Machijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Well, in these eight verses, we are introduced to the first of three marks of the worshiping community. The three rhythms, the three things that, that, once again, they're not the only three things, but they're three things that give shape to and muscle memory to the worshiping community that begins to understand how to navigate the world with God's help. And the first mark that emerges in verses 1 through 8 is clear communication. Clear communication of God's word. That there's, let me just sketch this out for us as it, as it shows up in these verses If there's going to be clear communication of God's word, well, the book must be central. Did you hear the emphasis on the book? This word where it's talking about the law of God or the book or the law of Moses, those phrases and others like it are used 11 times in the first 12 verses of of Nehemiah chapter 8. The author is making a point that this This renewal service, this worshiping moment that is poignant for the people of God must have the word central. You see, this gathering shows for us the roots of modern worship. The reason is because this is the first picture of what we see the exilic people of God doing when they gather to worship. And in the exile, when the people were moved away from Israel into distant lands, something happened around their worship that continued to influence them all the way up until the time of Jesus and the birth of the early church. What happened was is that previously the people of God had been a people that were centered on the temple. But when the temple was destroyed and the people were sent off into distant lands, it wasn't about the temple and it wasn't about the priests and it wasn't about sacrifice anymore. 
Now, what brought the people together and gave them a sense of their identity as worshipers was not the temple, but the synagogue, and not the priests, but rabbis or teachers, and not the sacrifices, not the, the sacrificial system is central, but the word. They became a people of the word because the canon was coming together. They were beginning to study the book of Moses, but then also they're gathering the writings of the prophets, and the people are studying the word at this point. It is central to who they are as worshipers. And by the, by the time of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the birth of the church, the way that the early church came together and understood their identity as worshipers was shaped by the way the exiles had come to be a word-centered people. You see, the scriptures are a brilliant shaft of light that makes darkness flee and it makes shadows scatter. Charles Spurgeon used to say, the word of God is like a lion. You need not defend it. Just let it out of its cage. You see, it's like a plumb line. The scriptures are like a plumb line that when someone engaged in masonry was building a wall, they would attach the rope and attach a little weight at the bottom of it. And that's how they knew what was directly vertical. And if you're going to build a wall that stands the test of time, you must know where true is. What is vertical? Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be men and women in a community that stands straight and tall under the pressures and the weight of a world that presses back against what is right and true and good, we must have the plumb line consistently speaking into our stories so we know how to build vertical and true. A worshiping community is a community of the book with the book central. This is why Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle of God's law of his word. Meaning the very slightest stroke of the pen under the inspiration of the authority, the inspiration of the spirit, it has delivered something that is authoritative that will stand the test of time. That's why Hebrews says it's sharper than double-edged sword, that the word of God cuts and divides. Psalm chapter 12 tells us that it's like that the Lord's words are pure, refined by fire seven times over. Do you hear it? Nehemiah stands over the people. I mean, it's beautiful. In, in, verse, um, in verse 5, it says, and Ezra, pardon me, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. The idea was that they had built a platform. And when he stood up, he made sure that they saw him and he saw them and they all saw the book opened. When we gather week after week to be a worshiping people, we do so around an elevated space where someone stands and they open the book. And the reason that the book is open is because that person, whether it's me or anyone else, does not have the authority to shape a community. But the book, the book, the God who has inspired it and breathed through it, like a lion being let out of its cage, it has authority. We have to have clear communication. The book must be central. And if we're going to have clear communication, understanding has to be the aim. Understanding is a term that's used five times in this passage. Look back at verse two with me. It says this. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Now, He's mentioning that it's men and women invited. And then ultimately, when he says all that can understand, he means all of the children that are old enough to comprehend. 
The younger children are not invited to this spot and in the same way that in our regular non-COVID worship, the reason we don't have little children a part of the whole worship gathering is not because we don't value them. It's not because we find them as a nuisance. We love them. We cherish the little ones. The reason that we have space where they can be taught and discipled and that we have a time where the word of God is opened and only those who can understand are in the room is because us coming to understand and see the book for what it is is crucial for us to being a a worshiping community, for us being shaped into God's likeness. You see, understanding is how they determined who was invited and that's how they determined how it was taught. Look back at verse um, eight with me. After it lists all those names of the people that were standing with them, it says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And you may have a a footnote on that word clearly if you've got your Bible open. Many books have the, many uh, Bibles have the footnote down below that says paragraph by paragraph. As best we can tell the translation of the Hebrew, they were reading a paragraph at a time. And then it says, and then they would give the sense so that the people understood the reading. The idea was the basis for what does the worshiping people, what do the worshiping people of God do when they're together? The book is opened, it is central, and it's taught paragraph by paragraph, thought by thought, and then the sense is given so that everybody can understand it. And that's how they determine success. It's a successful gathering if the people understand. At the end, they celebrate, and it tells us because they understood it. You see, clear communication is central if we're going to be worshipers. And the last note about clear communication central to the worshiping community is this. If the communication is going to be clear, the listeners have a, a responsibility. Look back with me. This is amazing to pay attention to how the assembly is engaging. Verse 1, it says, All the people gathered as one man into the square, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. The people are so eager for the scriptures. They're saying to the scribe and the priest that's come to lead them, you need to go get the scriptures and come and teach us. And then for the next six or seven hours, they with rapt attention listen to the word taught. And then interestingly, in verse verse 3, it says this. um, It says, verse 3b, it says, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Literally, it says their ears were directed to the book. They're directing their ears and they're saying, yes, okay, more. Okay, I understand that paragraph. Now tell me about the next paragraph. They're hungry to receive it. And then ultimately in verse six, we also read this. It says that when Ezra blessed the Lord, when he first opened the book, he he blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen and amen. They lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. That this is a people whose ears are attentive and hearts are reverent going, ah. The book is open. The brilliant shaft of light is shining out. The lion is roaring. The plumb line is being held up. I am going to understand how I'm supposed to live. I better pay attention. Brothers and sisters, I would invite you in this holy moment, week in and week out, when the word of God is preached, you have a responsibility. I'd invite you, just speaking very directly, I'd invite you, become a note taker. Not because what I have to say is so worthy, but because what the word has to say is so worthy. You need to write down, try to recreate the preacher's outline. See if you can recreate it and then go back and say, does this line up with the text? And if it does, it's authoritative over my life. How must my life change as a result? 
We need to be active listeners to God's word together. When it comes time after the service and you go and you have lunch and you're enjoying roast preacher over lunch, you know, how was that sermon today? What do you think about that preacher? Whether it's Seven Mile Road or anyone else, can I just invite you to do this? Do not be taken up with a culture of entertainment. Don't let yourself begin to think great preaching is, well, I laughed several times and that one story was killer and I was taken up with the emotion of it. Ask yourself this question, was the word central? Was it clear? Do I understand how the ideas of the preacher lined up with the ideas that were baked into the text itself? If that is the case, it's great preaching. And wherever you go, I know you won't be at Seven Mile Road forever. I'm not saying I'm the best preacher. What I'm saying is please, please, please make it a regular rhythm of your life to sit under that kind of teaching because it is good for your soul. It's the plumb line by which we can build our lives. You see, the first mark of a worshiping community is clear communication with the book central where we're aiming to understand where everybody has a responsibility. The second thing, the second mark of the worshiping community is conviction. What comes on the, on the heels of them hearing and understanding this word? Look back at verse 9 with me. As we continue to read, let's look at verse 9. It says this, And Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now what's going on here? You've got this immense crowd of people Men and women and children that were old enough to understand what are going on. And as they realize the authoritative word of God is being read paragraph by paragraph and they're understanding the sense of it, it is painful on one level because they are beginning to realize we are so out of alignment with the character and the heart of God. We're staring into a mirror and what we're seeing come back is is unsettling. We are a sinful and a broken people. The words wept, mourned, and grieved are used in this context because the people of God are beginning to realize that they are desperately sinful and broken. This is what the word of God does in us. It shows us, it exposes us. Every week, we spend time confessing our sin together as a community. It's one of the things rehearsed. Why is that? Is it self-flagellation? Do we want to make ourselves feel bad? Do we want to disregard the encouragement of Nehemiah and Ezra where they're saying, well, don't stay there. Don't stay in your grief. Are we trying to stay in our grief? No, no. We actually believe that this is part of the rhythm of engaging meaningfully with God. I remember, I remember years ago, elementary and middle school years, I spent in Connecticut just outside of New York. And I had two older brothers growing up. And I remember there was a big snowstorm followed by Uh, kind of a a freezing rain ice storm. And so we had like two feet of snow with thick ice on top of the snow. And I remember uh, we had school canceled and my brothers had this brilliant idea that there was like this estate kind of across our little town that had these enormous hills. And they said, let's go sledding. And, And so they took little brother to go sledding. And I remember I was on the front of the sled uh, and my brother was driving from the back And I remember it felt like we were going about 60 miles an hour because we were just sliding right across the top of the ice way faster than I think any sled is supposed to go. 
And I remember that at the end, we spun out just a wicked wipeout, like out of control. And we broke through the ice and I was tumbling through the ice and it was cutting and scratching and hitting me all over. And we got done and we were laying there and realizing we probably need to pack up and get out because we're pretty sure, we're not sure we were supposed to be sledding here, but now we're, we just had a yard sale with our, you know, our stuff is thrown everywhere all over. And, and so I was laying thinking, am I okay? And I really couldn't feel much of anything. My fingers had gone numb. My toes were numb. And so I slowly got up and we grabbed our stuff and we loaded up. And as we started to go home, uh, we got home and my mom had, we had a fire burning in the fireplace and my mom had hot chocolate for us. And I remember it was as I came in and as I started to thaw out that I realized something. I hurt all over. I had cuts and scratches and bruises that in the cold I couldn't fully feel. But as I got feeling back in my fingers and my toes and I sat by the warmth of the fire, all of a sudden I realized, I think, I think I need to be taken care of. I need my wounds to be dressed. I am not okay. Each week when we come to gather and worship, it's like coming in, in, coming in out of the cold and sitting by the fire. That we come in and it's like feeling starts to come back to our toes and our fingers. That as we sing and as the word is opened and the warmth and the brilliance of the light that emerges from there begins to thaw out a cold soul, we go, ooh, I need to be bound up in some ways. You see the mourning and the grief that comes in the recognition of the, the ongoing battle with sin in our lives. This is part of the process. Part of the process is coming to this place of conviction, of recognizing that, that I'm not okay in and of myself. But you see, it doesn't end there. We're going to see that Nehemiah and Ezra right in that moment are saying, but don't stay there. This day is holy to the Lord. It's not just about beginning to realize that we're wounded, but it's experiencing the healing that, is that we're being invited into. This week, I had the opportunity to lead a retreat for church planters, and, and they were sharing their life stories, and we were praying, getting to know one another as I'm going on this journey to, to help tend to their, their soul health as husbands and dads and planters. And, and one of the guys has spent years in the military, including several stints in Afghanistan, and he ended up being medically discharged because while he was in Afghanistan, he, he was... Uh, caught in some enemy fire and he ended up stand, stepping on a grenade and was blown up. And he ended up being rushed back home and was being nursed to health in Washington, D.C. in the hospital there. Nerve damage all over the left side of his body. Really some difficult wounds that he was working through. And as he told the story, it was this really special moment. It felt like a sacred moment to sit there and listen because his face changed. And he said, you know, I mentioned that I was dating Anne from a distance. And even as he said Anne, this kind of like smile. He said, you know, we've been dating from a distance. And he said, she, she put her master's degree on pause and she moved to DC for a season. And he said, you know what she did? She bound up my wounds. She'd sit with me in the hospital and help me change bandages. She tended to me. And as she nursed me, my heart was knit to hers in such a way I realized, is there another woman like this woman? And he said, and a year later, I made her my wife. That was where we knew we were, 
We were made for one another. And what I realized is, is that there's a certain pain from coming in out of the cold. There's a certain pain of beginning to realize our wounds. But the beauty of the rhythms of worship is that clear communication leads to conviction, but ultimately it leads to the third mark. And the third mark in verses 10 to 12 come on the, on the heels of experiencing the, the healing of those wounds. And the third mark is celebration. It's the joy that begins to bubble up as we realize I'm not just broken, but I'm broken and being healed in this community, in this moment, by the grace of this God. Let's see how this worshiping community celebrated. Look in verse 10 and following. It says this, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our God. Don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that word for strength could also be your refuge or your strong tower. As you take joy in the Lord, it's what protects you and becomes your fortress. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. This day is holy. Don't be grieved. They're binding up their wounds as they're weeping over their sin. They're going, no, no, shh, shh, shh. Listen, this is holy right now. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You see, rejoicing, not weeping, is the outcome of the worshiping community. That they are cut and aware of their sin, but in the moment of being cut and aware, the word from Ezra and Nehemiah to the community is, listen, this is not the end of the story. That you have just become aware that God is speaking, that you have been woefully lost, but now he has come and found you and showed you a path back to life and healing. That yes, your lostness is cause for grief. Your brokenness is cause for tears. But listen, there's hope and there's healing to be had. And just on the heels of this and, and the rest of the chapter, what they begin to celebrate is the Feast of Booths. They look back and they declare, let's celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is where they commemorate the fact that when they had been enslaved in Israel, that God had come and set them free. And then he sustained them in the wilderness after they'd been brought out of Egypt. Pardon me. They'd been brought out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness. God sustained them. And he provided for them. And so they looked back and they said, we need to celebrate the fact that God doesn't leave us in our chains. He doesn't leave us in our slavery. He sets us free and he tends to us. And they said, now is the time to drink the sweet wine and to eat the fat. You see, when we begin to understand what it is we've been rescued from, what the wounds are that have been bound up, celebration bursts forth. The sweet wine is called for. It's time to feast on the meal before us. In Anthony Ray Hinton's book, The Sun Does Shine, he tells the story of spending four decades on death row for for a crime he didn't commit. Nearly four decades. And uh, his is an amazing story. And ultimately, he was found to be innocent and set free. And as he writes about this most recent chapter of his life, this newfound freedom, you realize that this man who for years lived, in a sense, dangling by a thread on death row, his life constantly being threatened, not knowing when the final day is coming, but now he is free. He is a man whose freedom is so powerfully experienced and enjoyed because... 
He knows how deeply it had been threatened and, and had been taken from him for so long. That in fact, his memories of death row contribute to his joy in his freedom. If he were to minimize what had happened to him, that wouldn't explore and, and explain and uh, allow him to enjoy the freedom. But in fact, by not minimizing, by remembering and telling the story, he is a man that is living profoundly free. You see, brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. The rhythms of worship or that the word needs to be central. And as it is, we are cut with conviction as we realize, ah, I don't live in alignment with God's word and his ways. And we realize that we too have been on death row. And as we recall death row realities, the celebration breaks in. You see, this people looked back at the Feast of Booze. They looked back at their deliverance from Egypt and from Moses who delivered them. But we have a privileged position in human history. We have a privileged position as it relates to the redemptive story of God because we don't look back at Moses and we don't look back at Egypt. We look back at Jesus. And we look back at the death row that was the chains of our sin. That Every week what we are rehearsing is that God came for us when our life was dangling by a thread, that we deserved judgment. We deserved eternal judgment. Psalm 73, David says, I was like a beast before you. I had nearly slipped. The realization when we consider our sin and the wounds that it has worked into our story, the ways that we have rebelled against God and that others have sinned against us, we need wounds to be bound up and healed. And the beauty is that God came for us when we were like a beast before him. And through Jesus' death, his life and his death and resurrection, what we see is that he was, he was coming to bind up our wounds. When we deserve to be condemned and cursed, he said, put the curse on me so that the blessing can be poured out on them. Listen, your sin, it's not cause merely or only for grief and tears. As we are broken by the word shining its light into our hearts and souls, we turn and we say, oh, Jesus, thank you for coming for rescuing me, for preparing a place for me. He's not just producing a booth in the wilderness. He's building a palace in paradise. Like Jesus didn't just get us out of chains and into the desert. He's actually moving us from the wilderness that is the already not yet experience of our lives and delivering us one day into the place that he has gone to prepare for you, which is the very paradise of God's presence. This is what he has secured for us. We don't just celebrate the Feast of Booths. We celebrate the promised return of the King. And one day we will be home. We will be whole. And so... It's time to drink the sweet wine. <laughs> it's time to eat the, the fat of the land. And when we gather in person, it's the reason that after the word is taught and we're cut and we confess that and God speaks to us that we then come to the table and we share communion together because the table has been set for us to look back and to look forward and say, ah, I want to feast with awareness that I of all people have reason to celebrate. I've been set free from death row. I live fully alive. You see, these are the rhythms. This is the muscle memory of worship. The book opened, the heart cut, 
the celebration that erupts as his wounds bind ours. We want to be a worshiping community that experiences clear communication, conviction, and the celebration that erupts in response. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. You are worthy of our worship. Um, We have cause to celebrate. And so I just pray right now that anyone who has believed the lie that they're basically good, that anyone right now that is just skirting around the sides of this community and looking over and thinking, well, I'm not really that needy. I pray that by the power of your spirit right now, you would cut and you would convict. That you expose the ways that we, we don't worship you with all of our might, that we actually worship ourselves and we, we want to arrange our lives for our purposes when the story is actually yours. I pray that you would convict us of our rebellion and our stubbornness towards what you have for us. And that you would expose the realities that we have sinned against an eternally holy God and that we'd feel the weight of those wounds so that we can experience the joy of your healing. God, would you draw us to you and help us to celebrate in the ways that are appropriate. Jesus, you're worthy of our worship. I pray that we drink the sweet wine with hearts that are full. That we would feast at your table with with proper celebration. We love you. We thank you for coming for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.